when you're picking out your broadhead, the broadheads and veins kind of got to go together. And this is where kind of the crossover between tournament archery and hunting, in my experience, is kind of it's helped me out hunting wise because it's it's kind of the same with target archery. Even though you know you don't have anything in the front catching the wind. I've found that at longer distances, like 100 yards and beyond, you can definitely have too much vein or helical on the back and your groups will start to open up at longer distances because not only is your arrow slowing down a little bit faster, but it's more susceptible to wind and it kind of does what I call parachuting. Welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Bolin, and I'm with Evan Williams from Hoyt today as well. And today we have the great pleasure of meeting with Jesse Broadwater, who is a professional target archer, also an avid hunter, and we will definitely get into that. But recently, uh, Jesse's had some tremendous success we want to talk about, and throughout his entire career, it's been outstanding. Um, But Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Where, Where are you joining us from? I am in Florida now, just a little bit south of Tampa on the West Coast. Okay. Right on. So, and that's where you live. You're at your house. Yeah. Yep. Right on. Uh, Florida is, uh, becoming a more and more awesome state all the the time. It it appears that way. You know, we used to have snowbirds, you know, they come and leave and now they just came and they're not leaving. So (laughs) everybody's moving here. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, so Jesse, um, as a, I, I, I literally a professional archer, I mean, that's what you do every day, right? I mean, yep. full time. Right. Yeah. How long have you been fully dedicated to the sport? So I will start at the beginning because it kind of just it all goes together. So I started actually shooting when I was six years old and I originally had no intent, didn't even know what target archery was. I mean, all I knew was bow hunting. I grew up in Western Maryland um, and my dad bow hunted and I was like, that looks pretty awesome. I I'd like to go with him and, you know, like to kill a deer. I mean, I love deer meat. And I went with him previously, but you know, not with any weapon or anything, just to kind of go and sit with him and, you know, watch him kill a few. And I'm like, it's just pretty awesome. So he's like, well, you're, you're old enough now. We'll get you a hunting bow and, you know, see how you do with it. You practice up in the yard. Well, that was at six. That was six years old. Yeah. Six years old. You're old enough to kill a deer with a vertical bow. Yep. As long as wow. you could pull enough poundage, I think you yeah. had to pull like 35 pounds at that time in, in the state. And, uh, he's like, if we can get your muscles built up to that or whatever, and you hit a pie plate at, you know, 20 yards, well, I'll take you along. So, yeah. Yeah. He, so that was, it started at six and, um, 38 now. And I started actually competing in target archery when I was, uh, eight. So I've been doing full-time competing for about 30 years now. Oh my goodness. Jeez. That's incredible. So yeah. at six, were you able to get up to 35 pounds? Yeah, uh, actually, I was able to get up to it pretty quick because all I done was shoot like nonstop. I just yeah. I fell in love with it. Like I fell in love with the challenge of it. And, you know, all the first timers out there can probably relate when you first pick up a bow, like you can watch videos of it. And even I still to this day watch videos of it. And I'm like, it is not that hard but you go out there and try to do it and it's, it's just not as easy as what it looks. So I fell in love with the challenge of it and I would go out there and I'm like, you know, I started off just hitting the hay bale and I'm like, man, this isn't good enough to kill a deer, even come close. And I don't want to wound one. So I just, it became hours on end of just nonstop shooting. And I just 
wanted to constantly see my groups improve and I was not happy until, you know, I could basically Robin Hood and arrow, you know, that's, that was my goal. I wanted to like shoot tight groups and show my dad that I had what it took to go hunting with them. So that's, it just became a passion from the start. Wow. And yeah, so literally you haven't looked back since you were six years old. Yeah. Obsessed. That's still, I still got the obsession to this day. I mean, it's like, no matter how, how you go and you know what the level of you know competition you compete at or how you think you're doing like you always want to do better so wow what, what that keeps you is back. awesome well congratulations i know you recently qualified again for team usa for the world field archery team mm-hmm. that's yeah, uh, pretty awesome that was just just like last weekend yeah last weekend yep okay. um there's the the world field archery which is my absolute favorite style of archery um I feel it's like the most pure form of archery. You go out in the woods and you, you have, they have an unmarked day and a marked day and it's 24 targets and it can be varying terrain. And it's usually really tough. Um, and you have to figure out the range. You have to figure out the cut, make the shot. I mean, it can be, you know, super steep shots. It can be super steep and short shots to where like, if you don't practice it, you have no idea where to set your sight. Um, so there's a lot that it's, it's really a thinking man's game and, once again, it's, it's just one of those things where it's a challenge and I enjoy the challenge. So mm-hmm. I had, uh, I had competed in two world champion, world field championships, uh, one in 2012, which I won and one in 2014, which I also won that one. So it's just, you can tell. So you, you have two just, world gold medals. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So but yeah, so we just tried out again. I'm like this year, the world championships, it's actually in Yankton, South mm-hmm. Dakota. So it's in the country. A lot of times they're out of the country and I'm like, it's a no brainer for me to try out for, you know, being in my own country. So went there and, um, apparently I still got some skills and I ended up pulling mm-hmm. off a national, a national championship and made the world team too. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, Evan, what were you telling me about uh, about Jesse that that he he won like shooter of the year in in three different organizations? Yeah, one so year. Only archer in history to win shooter of the year for the ASA circuit, which is the the national 3D circuit, the NFAA, and the NAA, which is the USA archery circuit, in the same year. Only archer in history. Shooter of the year in all three organizations in the same year. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Got, yeah, that was the, uh, got the record at Reading too. Yeah. It's something like I, I set out to do that year. It's kind of hard because the scheduling has to work out just right because you can't miss one one event um in each of those uh, organizations or else, you know, each one that counts for a shooter of the year. So I had to kind of tiptoe around scheduling a little bit there so I could make each qualifying event, but um that was felt pretty good to me like the shooter of the year i think a lot of times people don't put enough emphasis on that but really if you win a shooter of the year in in any of those organizations you're on top of it like for the whole year like you can't have a mechanical breakdown you can't have a misset site you can't have anything go wrong not even one day out of one event um so that was pretty i'm pretty proud of that one that was pretty awesome uh, victory jesse is that is that based on like um some type of point system like a grand prix type point system or uh or scores or is it something people vote on or how is that 
Yeah, it, I think uh, that year was total aggregate score um, for each organization. So every arrow you shoot in that event counts and goes towards a total score. Okay. Wow. So if you yeah. have one bad tournament, it could yeah. mess. Yeah. That's the the only arrows that are not for score are shoot down arrows. Yep. Okay. Yep. So 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 all all qualification arrows minus shoot offs or finals. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's still when USA Archery or NAA Archery at the time was still doing the full called it a feeder round, which was 90, 70, 50, 30, you know, in a field and it can be windy and you know, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff go wrong there, especially. So yeah, pretty, pretty proud of that one. That's freaking awesome. Well, you know, there's, there's probably no more qualified person than to uh, talk with us today about how to properly set up a bow and arrow combination for uh, bow hunting. Because mm-hmm. well, I didn't say how to do that. I, you know, I think Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you, I, know, I know you told me you love to hunt. What type of hunting do you like the best? I, you know, I haven't got into the Western hunting yet, which is something that's still on my bucket list. You know, I haven't, I've never been elk hunting. Uh, well, I actually, I went uh, pronghorn hunting one time. Okay. So yeah. That's about the only Western style hunting I've done. Uh, other than that, it's just whitetail, um, you know, Northeast, Midwest, whitetail and Turkey. That's pretty yeah. much what, what I've always done. Well, there's what, you know, I'm, that's like my life is Western bow hunting. And, and I know like more than anything else, any other type of hunting, when you're taking these long shots in the wind and with a broadhead tipped arrow, whether mechanical or fixed, they're still in effect getting your arrow coming off of the bow completely straight and well-tuned is a huge criteria. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're obviously, um, very good at these different tuning processes. And there's frankly an overwhelming amount of theory out there. And, um, there's so many different styles of tuning and types of tuning and even, even the bullet hole type tuning there's so many different ways to go about that um and essentially achieve the same thing whether it's bear shaft tuning broad broadhead tuning uh paper tuning at different ranges all of these different ways of doing this and so i would love to get some thoughts from you and then also on top of that evan and i were just talking yesterday about the uh, new hbx cam system that that hoyt has launched in the last two years and um I'm having, uh, I attuned my RX-7 and it, it tuned perfectly with just small adjustments to the rest. But now my, Ven- my Venom Pro, I'm having to do some washer work. And I was talking to Evan about that yesterday. And so I would love to get your thoughts on some of this stuff. I know you've, you've uh, shot a lot of different bows over the years and, um, and both styles of Hoyts. And uh, this would be really, really fascinating to jump into. Evan, what are your thoughts? How should we approach this with, with Jesse? What do you think, Jess? Standard, like your approach to brand new bow out of the box? Yeah. Go, go, go through the setup. Because I, I even think that how you personally set up your D loop as far as the material, um, if you do internal knock sets, and then if you do just the bottom or just the top or top and bottom, are they equal? Are they biased above or below? Like all of that has an effect on the process. Sure. 
Yeah, there, there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of moving parts, uh, you know, in, in setups and just a little more background. Uh, we used, we had a family archery shop, so I have a lot of experience oh. in retail and dealing with, you know, you name it, I've seen it. And so that is, honestly, that's what gave me more, um, you know, skills on setting up hunting bows and er anything, because I got to deal with every single type of bow out there and in any form of variation that you could possibly think of. So I've, I've seen it all. It seems like, uh, and you know, it, a lot of times, you know, bow hunting is not what it is for someone else. Like, as it is for me, like I, I do it because I like, I love, I love archery. I love bow hunting. I love the thrill of the hunt. There's people out there that just, they, they do it to survive, like to put meat in their freezer. And it's really, you know, if they don't go out there and kill a deer, they're going to be really hurting through the winter time. So I, I've, you know, the area where I grew up in, there was a lot of that. So I really kind of bent over backwards to help those people. And, you know, even though they come in there and didn't have a lot of money to spend on, you know, new product or whatever, I had to figure out a way to make their stuff work. And cause I didn't want to see them go out there and fail. So, um, so a lot of the, the knowledge that I have from, tuning hunting bows is not just from my personal experience. It's from, you know, tuning a wide array of, you know, everyone else's stuff. So, um, but there, there's a lot of moving parts there. And I, I honestly think that, um, that a lot of people overthink it these days um, because there's so much access to information and maybe a lot of it is not the correct information for them. And so they start going down a rabbit hole and they're, they're, you know, they end up getting lost and it's just, they get frustrated and, you know, they don't know what to do. Um, so it's nice to have people to reach out to, you know, like some of the pro shooters like myself that are, you know, shop owners that have a lot of knowledge that um, are more than willing to help these people. Uh, a lot of good shop owners out there that if you take your bow to them, they're going to, they're going to help you get set on the right path again. But um, it, it first and foremost starts off with the best equipment that you can afford, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, it, with everything, with your bow, your accessories, your arrows, release, everything. I, I say buy, buy the best equipment that you can afford and you're going to be ahead of the game, you know, from the start. Um, there's a lot of, you know, mid-grade and, and lower-end stuff out there that, you know, sometimes will get you by, sometimes not. And if you're going to depend on it to put food on your table, you're kind of taking a risk there sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, you know, a lot of mechanical things that can break on you out in the field and just, you don't want to be left stranded out there with stuff like that. So quality mm -hmm. equipment is like first and foremost. And, you know, I'm not saying this because I shoot for Hoyt. I mean, I, I shot for Hoyt, Hoyt for many, many years, and I still believe that they make the most quality stuff out there as far as bows. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, since you bring that up, uh, I, I, I'm curious, I, I know you, for a while you were shooting, another brand and right. uh now previously to that were you shooting hoyt yeah i shot hoyt um uh, pretty much all my life up until that point so like 16, 16. years or something like that yeah okay and so recently you switched back to hoyt tell us about that why did you make that move so i was uh I, i'm not gonna lie i was offered a pretty decent deal and me doing this for a living i it was a no-brainer for me to to not take that and, you know, really try to provide more for my family and everything. And so I, at the time, you know, Matthews was coming out with some, some new target bows and I 
I assume that I, you know, I'm like, I've been doing this long enough, you know, they, they, they make quality stuff. I'm not going to have that much of an adaptation period. I'm like, I'll, I'll be able to do this. Um, it, it was, a, it was a hard, very, very hard tie for me to cut with Hoyt because I, like I say, I shot for them for years. I love the equipment and everything. But, um, like I say, there's just, it was one of those times it was a crossroads in my life and my career to where I, if I wouldn't have done it, I would have looked back and been kicking myself and be like, why did you not, you know, take that opportunity? You're, you're, you're dumb. You know, so, that, so was, this, that was, that was about moving away from Hoyt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And so why did yeah. you decide to come back? So, you know, I went, I shot for Matthews for five years and, um, it, it, no, you know, don't take this the wrong way or anything to make a quality product. But I just, even I went through five years and I practiced my butt off. I shot more in, in those five years than I'd ever shot because there was a lot more opportunity there for me, uh, financial wise to, uh, to take advantage of that. So I practiced like crazy. And, um, you know, if you look back at the results, the results don't show the amount of work that I put in. And the only thing I can kind of contribute that to is yes, they make a quality, um, they, they make quality equipment, but I don't think that it's, it wasn't for me. Um, I, I never could quite jive with, um, just the, the ergonomics and just the way the bow felt to me, the cam system, I just never quite got a hundred percent with it, no matter how hard I tried. And it really, it took a lot of effort to shoot it in. I mean, it's hard enough going out there and competing at the level it is these days. I mean, everything has to be perfect. And if it's not a hundred percent perfect and you're not a hundred percent confident, you're, it's very, very hard to win an event. So, mm-hmm. you know, after those five years, I'm like, man, I, I looking back on everything, I'm like, I, I just, I missed the Hoyt. I mean, I missed the, the, the way the Hoyt felt, the cam system, the ergonomics, the way the grip felt, all of that. I'm like, man, I, I really kind of missed that. And at, at that time, I'm like, it's probably more important to try to, you know, pick a, a bow that I actually love and enjoy shooting and don't have to work quite as hard doing mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of let, you know, hopefully bring back some results and kind of let the results speak for themselves. Um, that, that was a huge part of it. Um, you know, the other part of it is, is more the business side of it and, and you know, the people with the company and everything and who you're working with and what, uh, future things you may see in, with the company. So I, I love the guys at Hoyt. Um, you know, I, I've known the engineers and, you know, now the president, Zach, I've known him yeah. for years. And um, it's just, it, it, it really feels like family. Like I said, I've, I've shot on the Reading course with those guys and, you know, talk to them just nonchalantly, like not even about archery stuff, just about life in general. And so I've had a good relationship with them for years. And so it just kind of seemed right for me to, you know, go back with Floyd and, uh, Try, try to get back to enjoying archery a little bit more and maybe have a little bit more time to do other things instead of practice all the time, which that's obviously hard. Cause I, I, it's, I still got it in my blood. I, it, you're never satisfied. So I still find yeah. myself in a lot. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see you back. I, I remember when I saw that announcement, I was pumped. That's yeah. uh that's really great. So, uh, that being said, then back to, um, out of the box. What? Yeah. So, so, and, and it seems like you, you really put a lot of importance on this in the right way. I like how you gave that background. What do you, let's, let's kind of go through the process of, of the way you would set up a boat, the most important points. I mean, obviously you pull it out, you're probably going to put on a rest. Yeah. So 
I, and, and this is where I differ from a lot of people these days. And it's something I don't recommend to people, even if they ask me, but I literally shoot the same rest that I shoot target archery with. I hunt with, I hunt with a blade. Rest. I know a lot of people are going to squirm at the fact of that. And I don't blame them. It's not for everyone. So, you know, especially a new bow hunter and stuff like that, you know, get a quality rest and dr- they have good drop aways out there these days. Um, and there, there's nothing wrong with drop aways if they're set up properly. So, um, that's what I kind of recommend to, to most people, um, is a quality drop away. Um, and then quality arrows and, and broadheads and then matching, matching the broadheads up to the fletching length, um, is a huge, huge part of it. Cause you can have the bow perfect, the rest, everything's set up perfect. If you don't have quality, consistent arrows or broadhead alignment or, you know, which we can get into, um, it's not going to work. It's like having a, you know, $10,000 match grade rifle. And if you don't have the right ammo built for it, you're still not going to shoot good. So that's kind of one of those things where it's, it's all going to work together as a whole. Um, so w- let me just understand that what you, did you mean to have enough fletching for the type of broadhead you're shooting? Yeah. So in general, like if you're shooting a fixed blade broadhead, obviously a fixed blade, you got stuff out there that's catching the air. And yep. that's basically just, that's trying to steer the arrow. So the the fletching job, the fletching's job is to steer the arrow. You put something on the front of there with wings on it, basically, that's wanting to steer the arrow too. So if you don't have enough fletching on the back, the front's trying to steer the arrow and it's, it, you're never going to have consistent results. Yeah. So mm-hmm. basically the bigger head you got on the front and the more um, air resistance you got on the front, the more vein you're going to need on the back to kind of overrule that and, and help uh, steer the arrow. Um, you know, but there's also there's things in there too, that especially in the whitetail woods to where this, the type of, uh, vein or fletching you use and how much helical you put on it, you're going to start to get some noise from that too. And there's a point, you know, especially in the whitetail woods where it can be dead quiet. And if you're sending an arrow between 30 to 45 yards, that's kind of like the spot to where, you know, if you're at this speed where most bows are these days, um, that, that the deer is going to hear that arrow and it has more tendency to jump the string. Um, mm-hmm. so you want to kind of, like I say, there's a lot of options out there, but you want, that's first and foremost is you want to make sure you got enough vein on the back. You shouldn't have fixed blade broadhead. Um, and I, I, so tell me if this is right or wrong, but I, I obviously agree you need enough, but I also, I personally try to shoot not too much. I shoot, try to shoot yeah. as little vein as possible to still control, you know? So if I'm shooting a mechanical that has, you know, partially exposed blades, I'll shoot like a two and a half inch low profile fletching, a four fletch, and I can get away with that. Now I'm not going to get away with that fletching if I'm brown bear hunting and I have a a fixed blade, you know, inch and a quarter, four blade, I'm not going to get away with that fletching setup. I'm going to need a little higher profile, three inch fletching, four fletch. Yeah. So but I, I don't want to shoot that larger fletching on the mechanical when I don't need it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so that, that's, there's so many different combinations out there. So really it, when you, when you're picking out your broadheads and your, and everything like the broadheads and veins kind of got to go together. And this is where kind of the crossover between tournament archery and hunting in my experience is kind of, it's helped me out hunting wise because it's, it's kind of the same with target archery, even though, you know, you don't have anything in the front catching the wind. I've found that at longer distances, like a hundred yards and beyond, 
you can definitely have too much um, vein or helical on the back and your groups will start to open up at longer distances because not only is your arrow slowing down a little bit faster, but it's more susceptible to wind and it kind of does what I call parachuting. Um, and so it's just, it's just not as consistent at, at, at distance. So I, I, I agree with you there. You have to have the, the head and your veins kind of matched up just perfectly with what, what type of shooting you're doing and what distance you're doing it at. You know, you Western guys, I, I've talked to people that have shot out to 150 yards before, like in the wide open and, you know, in the wind. And obviously you don't want a five inch vein with a lot of helical on it, you know, doing that stuff. So, so yes, it's, it's, it's a lot easier with a mechanical head. Um, like, you know, you don't need as much on the back, um, but there's some people that just want to shoot a fixed blade and sure. you know, nothing wrong with that as nope. long as you have it set up properly. Um, but definitely vein selection and uh, how much helical on there matching it up to your head is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so oh, go ahead, Evan. I would say, so when, when you're setting your rest up, positioning your arrow through the burger hole or the rest mounting hole, do you like to be on the lower side? Do you like the center? Do you like on the top side? Do you have, do you have a reference that you like to start specifically or that you like always go through? And then once you have that, height set everything else is around your d-loop yeah so sorry i keep getting sidetracked so getting back to like first initially setting up the bow that is probably one of the first things i do is tie on a d-loop and i always start with it right through the center of the burger hole that's where i start um no matter if it's with my hunting bow or my target bow a lot of times with my target bow mostly i'll end up uh, moving that loop up a little bit where I usually end up with the bottom of my arrow, basically through the center of the burger hole. So it's a little bit above center. Um, and I, the main thing I do with that is the main thing I'm, I'm doing with that is like trying to figure out what kind of hold holding pattern that I am, am liking. So basically when you move the loop up the string, all you're doing really is changing the riser angle and how the grip pressure is applied to your hand. Um, so as you move it up the string, you're basically tilting the top of that riser back towards you and pulling the bottom of the grip out of the, the palm of your hand. And it can a lot of times help you kind of hold up in the target and help prevent some of those dip bangs or wanting to hold low on the target. Um, vice versa, some people like to shoot it a little bit lower and they'll get more grip pressure in their hand and they like the feel of that, um, the more grip pressure in their hand. So that's one of the first things that I kind of do is throw a general stabilizer setup on there. You know, with, with my hunting setup, I don't run a lot of weight just because it's the whitetail woods, mostly, you know, what I'm hunting and I don't need to really drag around a lot of weight. So, and with these new Hoyts, I mean, honestly, you don't need much. The way the stabilizer system is way low and out front. A lot of times I won't even put an extra stabilizer on there. I'll just run what they um, have on there from the factory, which is how much, what do they put on the, a few ounces, four yeah, ounces, I think. Yeah, two and a quarter and four ounces. and a half or something. And it's I, it's I was blown away when I, I put a six inch uh carbon stabilizer on there with four ounces out front on that low mount point. I could not believe how stable it was. It felt like I had a 20 inch stabilizer on yep. there. Yep. It is insane. I couldn't believe it too. I'm like, I'm not even gonna have to run a stabilizer on these things. So that's I'm just running mine just with the four ounces what it comes with and no, I, I, I do run a, uh, an eight inch back rod just to kind of, um, get my left and right balance. But, um, so anyhow, are I'll you throw, running a bow mounted quiver or a, uh, 
I, I do, but I a lot of times we'll take it off. So it's uh, yeah. I like to run attachable one. Yeah. Okay. So I'll throw you know general stabilizer setup on there, and then I will you know get the draw link set properly, which we can talk about how to do that. But as far as the loop position goes, that's one of the first things I like to do before I really lock in the loop. So I'm looking for making sure that I'm not you know the bow's not wanting to hold low. You know, and, and I'm fighting it to get it up in the spot. And then I'm also looking that, you know, that kind of means that the loop's too low, in my opinion. So when you start moving it up the string, there's a point to where I found anyhow to where you can get too high to where the bow will want to start to bounce up and down vertically. And, you know, if you've, you know, found that you went a little bit too far and I'll just back it down a little bit to where, you know, the bow, the bow just wants to naturally hold right in the middle without fighting you in any way. And that's kind of where I lock down the loop position. Um, and then I'll just, I'll set the, the rest 90 degrees to that to start off with. Um, and as far as center shot goes, there's no real, you know, measurement you can go by. Like, you know, a lot of people say, well, this, you know, this will, you know, it's a 13, 16 center shot and that's where it's supposed to be. And that's where the end. Well, you can't really go by that because everyone has a different hand position. Everyone has a different anchor point. They might have face contact with the string, which drastically changes your left and right, your horizontal knock travel. And so there's, a whole lot that goes into it. So honestly, I'll just eyeball the string kind of down the center of the grip and set the center shot, you know, pretty close to center to start mm -hmm. with and, you know, kind of tweak it from there. So, so, and even, even the manufacturer's designed cutout of the riser can affect that. Cause that's one yeah. thing with, with the Ventums last year. So we had a deeper, deeper cutout in that shelf, which means if you were measuring from the inside out, you actually had a larger measurement than normal Correct. because of that increased cutout. Cause I'm usually in that 13 sixteenths to three quarter range, kind of right in that zone. And last year with that cutout, I was 15 sixteenths, almost a full inch on that measurement. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be wherever it's going to be when it ends up, you know, it, it all depends ultimately on how the bow shoots and how consistent it is. Like that's, that's what you're after. You're not about, you, you know, you're not after trying to hit everything on the manufacturer's spec and what it's, you know, quote, supposed to be and all that. That's where that's where everyone gets hung up these days. And I'm on a mission to debunk all of that. I swear I'm going to do it because I get hammered every day with these questions. And, you know, they're like, well, this Hoyt's, you know, is tearing left and this and that. And I, you know, I was like, well, OK, where's your center shot? And, you know, you put it in. Cam no, you know, I don't want to I don't want to put camling in it. And, you know, have you had to shim the cam? No, I don't want to do that. I'm like, that's what the shims are for. And that's what the yokes are for. And, you know, you can move that rest around. That's why it's got adjustments on it. And, you know, they're afraid to get out of, you know, where they think it should be. And they're more hung up on that than how they're actually shooting. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of crazy to me. And I've, I do this for a living and I could care less. I don't care if my arrow does two flips and makes a left turn as long as that thing <laughs> is like, if it's grouping and consistent and hitting where I want it to, I could care less what, what the bow's doing, where the measurements are, what the cam lean is. None of that matters to me. Like, that's not what we're keeping score for. Like, it shows so, up on a scorecard, and that's all that matters. So, me. Jesse, though, what's, what's ideal um, in your mind? Like, personally, I would rather have a nice-looking center shot and, and use the yokes or the, or the shims to, to tune from there. 
I mean, yep. I don't mind moving my rest a bit, but if it gets where it doesn't look right to me, I'd rather mess with that other stuff. <laughs> What's your feeling? What would you rather see? Yeah. So that's basically where, where I'm at with it. And just to kind of keep a, a you know, happy medium ground, uh, that's kind of what I've been preaching for years is like, there's a certain spot. I mean, obviously if you're get if you get to like the max adjustment to your rest and you're like an whatever inch and three eighths away from the shelf on your center shot. And it's like, yeah, there's other adjustments you can do. So yes, I will. There's kind of a range. If I can keep that center shot where it, you know, looks okay. And then work off the yokes or the, the shims, then yes, that's what I'll do. And, um, you know, try to, try to get everything working. And I, there's, hasn't been really a bow to this day that I haven't been able to, to get the shoot how I wanted it to, you know, by moving the shims or the yokes or the center shot, like I'd say every bow is definitely tunable. Now there's sometimes where it hasn't been the right arrow set up or whatever for the bow, but that's, you know, like you say, that's what you've got to have figured out do, too. So do you find too, that if you're running a cam and a half system that has a yoke or the HBX or HBX pro that has the shims that if you need to make a larger adjustment for your eyeball right out of the box, that rather than trying to move that rest, doing a yoke tune or doing a shim spacer swap or movement will get you more in the long run and then fine tuning with the rest. Yeah, generally that's the case. Um, and you know, you can move the top and the bottom cam. That's another thing people are confused about. They're like, well, you know, you're saying to shim the top cam. What about the bottom cam? I mean, they both work the same way. And basically, so, and just to throw this out there, like if you're after a bullet hole and say you're getting a left tear, your right-handed shooter, um, so you're, you're going to want to shim the cam to the left, like towards the way that it's tearing. You can shim the, the top cam, just the top cam. You can shim just the bottom cam, or you can shim them both. And it basically, on almost every bow I've played with, it equals out to where like if you, if you want to move the top cam, say 30 thousandths, to get and that's how much it takes to get you a bullet hole you can move them both like fifteen thousand half of that so oh, okay um so yeah so i use the, the the cam shimming as like a rough adjustment and then use your center shot on your rest as a fine-tune adjustment um and that's so, basically how i do that so could you explain this for the listener that this might be a bit of a foreign concept um of what's actually happening happening with a yoke tune or a, a shim a spacer adjustment what's mm -hmm. physically what's happening to the bow to make the arrow come off straighter yeah you're, you're just changing the string oscillation so that string has a certain string path that it's coming down and it's delivering the arrow and so you're changing the path of that you're changing the string path and how it's pushing on the arrow so if you just kind of you know in your mind think about the you know your knock right on the right in the d loop and how it's coming down and pushing on that that arrow and that knock if it's a little bit off center say it's to the right of center it's going to want to push you know the back side of that arrow to the right and then you're going to end up with basically a right tear so all you're doing is just basically changing the string path now this is where the human error part comes in because you can have like tuning a bow and working on the mechanical stuff that's easy you basically set it and it's not going to move on you um and that's one other thing real quick, like that's where I kind of think the, the HBX cam system shines, e even though I like yoke tuning um, and I have yokes on my target bow on the SPX cam system, 
it's it is easy to tune it's easy to put it in the press and you know put a half twist in one side of the yoke or whatever but if you don't have quality strings on there or say you nick a string in the field one side of that yoke you know it's it's half the, half the strands half the thickness, yeah yep. exactly so you could nick one of them you, and then that's going to change your cam lean so in my opinion on a hunting bow especially it's you're better off to you know, just not have yokes on there. Um, and to use the binary cam system, like we got, like once you move those spacers, you set it, it's not going to move on you. So there is kind of a advantages and disadvantages to a yoke tuning system, but on a hunting, uh, setup, I, I like the binary, uh, system. That's a great um, point. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that. That's, that's, I, I kind of miss the ease of the yoke tuning. Um, but I, I, I also like, it, it feels to me like the yoke tuning produces more of a lean than the spacer tuning, right? Um, it, well, it depends on how much room you got to work with, you know, within, within your, between the limb split. Um, you know, if you don't have, you can, yeah, you can crank that yoke to where you can move it farther than you, then you can like shim a cam and get it to right. move. I don't think you ever need to go that far, but you, you could. Um, but getting back to the, the human error part of it now, talking about string delivery and string path and everything, everything that every type of human input that you have on that bow, you know, meaning your, your grip, you know, you're holding the bow with your bow hand and you're, you're holding the string with your release or fingers or whatever, everything you do, if you torque the bow different, if you have face contact, if you twist your release different, um, whatever, any little bit that you do changes that string path. And so I can take a bow and shoot it through paper, which I've done, thousands of times at my shop and shoot a bullet hole and the owner picks up the bow and shoots it and might tear an inch and a half left or right or whatever. And so you have to tune the bow to the individual who's shooting it. And, you know, it's, if they're doing something that, you know, maybe you think you can correct on them, if they're really gripping the bow and torquing it, you know, maybe that's where some coaching comes in and be like, Hey, try this, you know, turn your palm towards the floor and you'll loosen up your fingers. That's what the slings on there for. You're not going to drop the bow. Don't worry about it. You know, and then if their draw length's a little bit long, they're really drawn back into their face and you can just see the white in their face, you know, from the string hitting it. And you're like, man, this is going to tear wicked. You know, you can, there's things you can do to mitigate that stuff. And it, it just becomes habit over years from these people just shooting the same way they've always shot. And they, they didn't know any better when it was starting. And some of those habits are hard to break. Sometimes you can work with the people and get that out of them. Sometimes it's better to just let them do what they're doing and try to tune the bow to, to how they're shooting it. And ultimately it doesn't matter as long as they do it the same each time. Like, so, you, so Jesse, in theory, if you had two professional archers with the same draw length, would they generally both shoot a bullet hole out of the same bow? Probably not. Probably you, not. You can, it's probably not going to be an inch and a half tear though. It, hey, it's hard to say. <laughs> you, you can, this is a funny thing about, you know, our sport. I guarantee you, you can look down the line at Vegas, the Super Bowl of archery, the top of the top. You can look on the pro line and go down 300 shooters. And I guarantee you, every single one of them will have different form, different release positions. Like it's it's such a unique individual sport that there is no one uh, correct form of, you know, archery. There just is like a golf swing. Yeah, it's it's completely individual. So it really takes a lot of, you know, one on one stuff and. If, if like I set out to learn it on my own, like I, I'm the type of person, like I have to know, you know, why does this work like it does and what do I need to do to fix this and that? Um, a lot of people don't want to do that or they just don't have the time to learn that. That's where a good shop comes in. And so 
yeah, there's definitely nothing wrong with, um, there's no, like I said, there's no one cookie cutter form that you have to shoot. And there's, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of face contact if you do it the same each time, but having the knowledge to tune the bow to, to where you're going to be shooting good. You know, that's, that's the most important thing. So, so, uh, so you had mentioned again, everything that we do that we have contact with is going to affect this and specifically your release hand facial pressure. So we just got done with a podcast that we launched with Forrest Carter on the different types of release aids, mm-hmm. activation and all that. I prefer to shoot with a handheld. Alan is using a wrist strap um, on an on an index style release. Uh-huh. What do you find as more forgiving material wise if you're not sure and you're still playing with what release you personally like more between a handheld and an index? Yeah, it's uh, it's whatever is going to be most comfortable to you. That's that's the basic answer to that. Um, I, I grew up when I first started hunting, I used a wrist strap all the time just because that's what everyone did. And I'm like, well, that's what you got to have to hunt with. And I got accustomed to it and I was able to shoot it just as well as I was able to shoot my target, you know, my handheld release. Um, so it's whatever is most comfortable to you. I don't think that there's uh, any release out there that, that shoots better than, than another. Um, because once again, they're mechanical aids, they're going to be doing the same thing each time as, you know, besides the human input, like twisting it differently or whatever. Um, so it's, it's basically up to the person and whatever they're most comfortable with. Uh, some people don't like, don't like to, or some people can't hold on to a handheld, whether they got nerve damage in their hand or muscles that are messed up and they have to use a wrist strap. And so that's all these types of things you kind of have to work around with the individual and figure out what's going to be most comfortable to them. But, um, you know, there's so many, there's so much, this is what's great about today is there's so much quality equipment out there that it's, you almost can't make a wrong choice. I mean, back in the day, 20 years ago, there was some shady stuff out there. Hmm. You you definitely wanted to avoid. Um, But nowadays everything's safe. Everything's good. And there's so much of a wide selection. That's, you know, you you could spend two days and not shoot every type of release that's out there. I mean, I think true ball alone has, I don't know how many different variations of releases. So um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of archery and about, it's about comfort because with comfort comes repeatability. And like, that's what it's all about. You repeat the same thing over and over again, you're going to get consistent results downrange. Yeah. Do you find there's a, a better type of dilute material if you're still going through that process of playing as far as, again, because that index style, it's going to be more of a, a horizontal or flat surface versus a handheld where you are putting torque on that dilute material depending on the angle of your hand yeah i i like a thinner dilute material myself um just because of that reason like i think you can get away with more um, inconsistencies in your rotation of your release hand with a with a thinner dilute material what exact material do you use right now i use the that's uh bcy debrade is what it's called Mm mm-hmm yeah. And that's, I've used it for years. I mean, I got a big spool of it years ago and I'm still cutting off that same spool. So yeah, that's, that's what I use. Um, you know, some hunters, they used to think they, you know, they need a durability and need the thick, you know, the thickest D loop on there they could get and that you will run into some, you know, torque issues there if they're doing things a little bit differently, but generally not a lot. I mean, these days you're any release will, will um, be fine with like a thinner deep, 
debraid type material. Mm-hmm. So. so about about tuning, you know, we talked about like how to adjust right and left tears. I think up and down tears are a little more straightforward. We probably don't need to talk about that, but left and right tears, we talked about the different ways to go about that. What what is your preferred tuning method? How do you like to do it? So with with a hunting bow, um, once again, like so I shoot, uh, I have the past couple of years, I've used like Grim Reaper broadheads, the expandables before. Um, last year I was using the Evolution Outdoors, the Jekyll and the Hyde, or mm-hmm. the Hyde, the mechanical and the Jekyll is the fixed blade. Um, the number one important thing I think with any broadhead, especially a fixed blade, and I learned this years ago, is to have the the broadhead spin true to the shaft. So make sure you're squaring up the insert or the end of the shaft to perfectly mate with the the shoulder on the broadhead. Because if you have a broadhead that does not spin true, you put it on your spinner or if you spin it in your hand and you feel any bit of wobble to that, it, it's not going to be consistent. Mm-hmm. And you have to watch too, because on some of, uh, depending on the broadhead, the kinetic energy you're shooting, um, and the insert system, if you're using a, uh, you know, an aluminum insert that still has the aluminum shoulder that sticks out and you depend on the target you're shooting into, you can have it, you know, perfectly trued up, spinning true and you shoot it a few times and you check it again. And it, that aluminum will mash, it, it'll change on that insert and you'll, it, um, it'll start wobbling again. So you have to really keep an eye on that. That's what's nice about the, uh, like the internal uh, insert system on some of the Eastern arrows is it mates up against the carbon and that's really not going to change on you. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry about it as much, but, but having your broadhead and, you know, broadhead alignment spin true to your arrow is very, very important. Um, so that's the first thing I do when I make up all my arrows, um, I used to shoot them all through paper. Uh, I, I would stick a field point in. I would shoot them all through paper, bare shaft, and try to get them all to tear the same hole. And I would index my knocks. I would turn the knock to basically get them all tearing the same kind of hole. Didn't have to be a bullet hole at, at first, but as long as, like, say, I was getting a quarter inch high left tear, um, I would shoot all my arrows, make sure that was like the average tear I was getting, and then I would turn them all to get that same exact high left tear. Um, and then I would mark the shaft and that's what they, what we call indexing. And then I, at that point I would fletch them all. And so you're basically, uh, especially on a carbon arrow an all carbon arrow, you're basically just spine tuning them. There's kind of a, a variation in spine on a, on a carbon arrow. It's just, it's just how it is with the process that they used to make them. Um, so you're basically just indexing the spine on the arrow. So once I did that, I'll go through and I'd fletch them and then I would, uh, figure out the broadhead I'm using, make sure all the arrows was trued up and they was all spinning exactly true to the shaft. And then I would go out there and, and shoot them. Say at, say I would start at 30 yards. And um, I generally start with a field point and a broadhead and just see how close they hit together. Um, but honestly, that don't matter as much as what, you know, a lot of people think it does. That's kind of, that was kind of the rule of thumb back in the day is, you know, try to get your field points and broadheads to shoot together. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it, it's not the best for your broadhead, uh, which ultimately that's, that's what you're going to be shooting at the animals. So that's what matters. So, um, I, I, all I'm looking for is consistent results down range. So I'll get excited in at 30. I'll walk my way back to 40 or 50 yards and I will just shoot. I will shoot a target at different spots and see, if I'm grouping, basically make sure they're all hitting in the same spot. 
Um, if they're not, I use the same process that I use for my target bow, which is, I just call group tuning. I, I do with my hunting bow and I'll start off with just adjustments on the rest. I'll, I'll adjust the rest minute amounts. Generally, if I'm getting say more of a left and right group, I will adjust the center shot and I'll just pick a direction. It doesn't really, there's no rhyme or reason I've found to what you start with. It's just pick a direction and go with it. So maybe I'll start with a, a quarter turn on the rest adjustment out to the left and I'll stand back and I'll shoot again until I get, and, you know, kind of take notes on where they're hitting. Did it improve? Did it not improve? Did it stay the same? Um, if it improved, I'll go a little bit farther and I'll go until, you know, I start to see it open back up and then I'll back it off a little bit. And same thing with the vertical grouping. If I'm getting vertical grouping, I, I go to the rest to start off. Uh, the rest or timing, um, your vertical grouping can be a little bit of timing sometimes too. Um, but I'll start off with the rest. Same thing there. I'll, you know, pick a direction and go with it. Usually I'll start with moving the rest down first, just a minute amount, shoot it again. And so that's all I'm doing is basically just making minute adjustments and, and reshooting. And I, I feel like that's the only way you're going to get, um, you know, consistent results that you're going to be you know, happy with, you can spend That's all day. Yeah. You can spend all day with the paper tuning. You can try to get your broadheads and fill points to hit together. I mean, but ultimately in the end, you know, what, what matters is where your broadheads are impacting and mm -hmm. how consistent they are. And if it seems forgiving, if, if you get like, this is, I've seen this a lot too, with target and bow hunting, you might get a setup to where like you'll nail the dot like almost in the same hole, say you're at 40 yards, you're shooting at a one inch dot. Like you'll nail that dot two times. And then all of a sudden one shot, it'll be like two or three inches away. And you're like, man, that felt like a good shot. You know, it felt like it didn't do anything different. So you shoot it some more, you'll nail the dot a couple more times and then boom, two inches, three inches away, like in the other direction. You're like, so that is what I would call like an unforgiving setup. Um, at that point, there's some things you can do. Um, I still call it group tuning, but I, I still feel like you can move the rest around and kind of mitigate some of that. And then also sometimes that could be like arrow spine could start to come into play there to where, yeah, it hits good on a really good shot, but maybe the spine is just a not quite right. And it's just not forgiving for the poundage you're shooting or whatever. Um, you know, and then you might have to look at are the arrows too weak? Are they too stiff? Um, you know, then if you, if, say they're too weak and you, you know, you left a little bit of length on them, you can start trimming them, trim, you know, trimming them down. Um, if they seem too stiff, you know, maybe you can add a little bit more uh, head weight to them. Maybe you can change your fletching around a little bit to get them to group good. Um, so, so that's basically how I do my targeting. So if you, if you do this process of group tuning and you end up moving your rest a bit, does it then not bother you if you went back inside and you're not getting the bullet hole? It does not bother me one bit. A lot of times okay. I won't even shoot it through paper again, but what I will do is shoot a bear shaft at 20 yards or 20 meters or whatever. And the only reason I shoot that bear shaft after I get done group tuning is just for a reference point. So I know if something moves, like when I get that bow just dialed in and just pounded and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it, shoot a bear shaft at 20 yards and say it hits four inches at five o'clock. Like I'll do that a few times, make sure that it's there. And that's, that's my reference. So like, that's my tuning point. If something changes or whatever in the field, or if you're at camp, something changes, you drop your bow and you're like, man, I don't know if something's off, take your bear shaft out or, you know, first of all, shoot a, 
uh, you know, a good shaft, a broadhead shaft, make sure it's sighted in there, shoot your bear shaft, make sure it's hitting in that same spot. If it's not, then you know which way to move your rest or whatever to get it back to mm. where that's exactly the same point. And then it's like, I do the same thing with my, my tournament bow, it's the same exact process that I use for it. If I'm in Reading and my bow falls over and I'm like, man, I just, I don't know. I go to the practice range, shoot my bear shaft. If it's right there, then I know that nothing has changed on it. So, man, I got to admit what you're describing there kind of, um, scares me. Like, <laughs> like I, you know, I like something that I can like, so scientifically, like I want to see, I know. know I'll index my shafts and I want all dozen. I want to shoot 12 perfect bullet holes in a row with 12 different arrows. Or yeah. I want to have like, I've had times where I've, I've had my bear shafts and flat shafts group, making tiny little groups together. And my bear shaft with a luminoc or, or a nocturnal on it looks like an absolute dart. And that just like makes me so happy. Mm, and right. then the thought of going back to 60 yards and saying, Hmm, my group's kind of wide left and right. I'm going to move my rest. Yeah. Like, I gotta be it, honest, Jesse, that gives me anxiety. <laughs> listen, I, listen, I have OCD too, and it's taken me many years to overcome that and be, and be okay with that. And sometimes yeah. it works out to where like, Hey, you get a shooting right and you're happy with it. You might walk in and might shoot a perfect bullet hole and your bear shaft might be touching your butt shaft. That, that's, that's awesome. I guess, you know, I used to be happy with that, but anymore, I really don't care. And it's funny. I think more people are starting to see that these days. I know uh, a lot of listeners out there might know Paige Pierce. She's like one of the top female shooters in the country right now. She's also made the U S team and just won Reading with a new record. And she, she's an absolute killer with a bow and arrow. She is, she, if you listen to any of her podcasts or whatever, listen to her talk or follow her social media, she's, she's the same as me, only a little bit worse. I mean, she just showed, uh, she just shot a reading or a record at reading five down, which was the men's record for years mm-hmm. of phenomenal shooting. And uh, she's like, she went back to her house just to show everyone. And she shot through paper. And it was like a high left tear, like an inch and inch and a half or something like that. She's like, see, it doesn't matter. And, and, wow. she, and she group tuned the week before reading and made exactly. a rest adjustment. Yep, exactly. So it's so, like, and- it, but, hard it's hard to prove that to people because they just they don't want to believe it they want to believe that like everything has to be set in a certain spot and that's you know that's how it has to be and they they literally focus more on that than they do about the actual results so it's it's kind of hard to to prove that to some people but like i say i'm on a mission to do it so well i'm glad i spoke up then because it's that's interesting that you're so I, you got to have a certain amount of confidence, I guess, in your, in your grouping as well to be able to do this. Like your, your average archer isn't going to be able to go out at 60 yards and analyze the groups and know that, Oh, well, that wasn't me. I better move my rest. Right. That's a good point. That is a, and that's something I missed for sure. Um, yeah. So there's a little bit of like, you know, how much experience do you have? What's your, what's your skill level and stuff like that. Obviously you don't want a beginner going out there at a hundred yards, you know, and starting to group tune or whatever, right off the bat, which is, that's where I group to my target bow um, with a hunting bow. It, it might be 20 yards. It might be 25 yards. Uh, it might be 40 yards. It's just, I, I say go to a distance to where you know how you, you know what you're capable of. Like if you shot enough before at 40 yards, and you know that you're capable of holding a three inch group, then go to that distance 
you know, maybe you're not as comfortable with 50 or 60, just go to 40 and do it. Um, you're you're going to see the same thing there. It's just, you're going to see it as you get more advanced, you're going to see it a little bit quicker and be able to just fine tune a little bit more at the longer distances. Um, but there's definitely nothing wrong with starting at 20 yards and doing it. Um, that's all we've done at our shop, you know, cause that's all the room we had to do it in. And so that worked for, that worked for everyone. I mean, worked for a lot of people. So yeah, you, that, that was a good point to bring up. I don't want people going out there and winging arrows over their fence and hitting their neighbor, you know, trying to group tune. So definitely well, just go where yeah. you're coming. I'm just like, you know, I shoot a lot and I'm, you know, pretty accurate. And I, and I, and I feel like I'm just imagining myself do this. I'm going to try it. Um, I'm going to take your challenge and, right. and give it a shot, but I just see myself second guessing a little bit like, well, I, I mean, is this really a bad group? And yeah. is this, you know, like, it's because it's not, it's more, what you're talking about is more art than science. Yeah. Right. And, well, and the, the bullet hole stuff I, that I was talking about, I mean, that's just like cut and dry. Right. And so, and I'm not saying that obviously th there must be something to what you're saying that there's perhaps an, another level and perhaps is not the bullet hole thing. Isn't achieving the best groups. And that's you're, you're right. There's no question. Accuracy is the most important thing. Consistency, accuracy, forgiveness. That's what yep. you want. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, there was something I was going to touch on there. It just. Well, well I was mind. saying I would second guess myself and think, well, is this really oh, yeah. a bad group? Yeah, exactly. So your mind, your mind is a pretty incredible thing, especially with archery. And, you know, a lot of what I do is it's probably 90, 98% mental. Like if my performance pretty much depend, depends on, obviously having a good mechanical setup and, you know, being practiced up and in shape physical and all that stuff, but it's a lot mental. So your mind basically takes a snapshot right before the split second, a nanosecond, as you fire that release, you, your mind takes a snapshot of what your sight mm -hmm. picture looked like, where your pin was on the target or whatever. And so that's yeah, how know. I kind of, yeah. yeah, that's how yeah. I judge. Well, you know, to, to be sure of the groups you're shooting, you're like, cause if you shoot a shot and you're like, man, my pin was, my pin was at seven o'clock on the edge of that dot and my arrow hit, you know, whatever, two inches from that. And then shoot another one. And like, man, that broke five o'clock on the edge of the dot and my arrow is whatever, three inches. So that's how you kind of got to judge your groups and, and see if it's actually shooting that way. So you, you have to kind of reflect back on each shot and be like, all right, you know, and, and once you get it, like when you get a setup, it just hits behind the pin every time it's, mm -hmm. It's awesome because like every shot that you, this split second, you shoot it. You're like, man, yep. That's going to be there. You look and it's there. It's like right behind, right where it broke every time. And that's how, you know, you got your setup dialed. You don't want to have yeah. any bit of variance or question. You're like, man, I think I broke on that dial, but that hit like two inches from where then it's probably not right. And, you know, just be sure that there's no wind, you know, obviously if you're shooting outside. The wind plays a huge factor in this with, you know, especially fixed blade broadheads and stuff like that. So the wind can be very, very tricky. And it, it's still, it fools me to this day. I'll be out there and thinking, man, it's, it's not much wind blowing and I'll be shooting and I'll be starting to get aggravated. And I'll be like, man, something's just not right here. And, um, I recently put, you know, wind ribbons up in my yard. Like I got them everywhere so I can kind of keep a better eye on it just for a peace of mind more than anything, because th there's certain times where you're like, you, it, it'll, it'll just trick you. So just keep an eye on that. Make sure it's not the wind, and you know you're not trying to tune your bow all day. And here's just the wind blowing your stuff around. So try to get a good calm day, 
good consistent lighting and stuff like that before you go doing something like this. Well, that was a huge relief to hear you describe how, you know, you'll feel the, the break of the shot and it was slightly off. And then the arrow, if it lines up with that, you sort of like count that as a good shot. And that it's, it's, it's a relief to me that know you're to know you're mortal mm-hmm. and yeah. to know that everybody mm-hmm. thinks that way. And that it's not like you're just pounding perfect groups and then, well, that group should have been perfect, but it wasn't. And I know it was perfect, but you're, you're calculating sort of and making allowances for arrows that weren't good and maybe excluding them or whatever. So that, yeah, I, I see how you could eventually put together an assessment of how the group is. And then from there decide, well, is that good enough or not? And should I try to move my rest rider left and see if it gets better? That's right. kind of what you're saying. It's not, it's a little bit uh, hard for me to, to, it, it's because it's going to be a challenge, but I'm going to try it. I'll let you know. It's very, it's, it's very unscientific. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's fun to play with too. Cause it, one, it, for me, when I was training at the Olympic training center with my rifles, we used to do it a lot. We were on an electronic monitor and you would turn that sucker around and you would take shots and you would call them to somebody who was actually looking at that monitor and they would tell you if you were right or not. And you can do it with a buddy at the archery range where give them your binoculars and just take your shot Yep. and you tell them where it hit. Exactly. Exactly. We, we do that a lot. Yep. I'll do the same thing. I, we just done it before Reading. My buddy come down, my partner, Shane Wills, and we shooting at a hundred yards. And I'm like, I would shoot a shot and he'd have the spot and scope and I'd be like, whatever, tweener at five o'clock. You know, I was calling him out and he'd be like, yep or no. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is a very good. So you're calling good. where it broke. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I'd be like, that could be four o'clock in the dot, you know, and if it's not there, then we got problems, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're not calling where you see the arrow go, but rather where it broke and where you think, okay. Yep. That's like, snapshot, the snapshot that your mind takes as soon as that, you know, like you just yeah. know where your pin, where it broke and where it should yeah. be. Okay. So I'm actually installing a camera system on, on my target, on my range with a TV oh, from where I shoot. So I That's can see awesome. the impact. I, I think that'll be pretty fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I got a little, I got the phone scope through a spot and scope. So I just set my phone up there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Easier than others. But yeah. So, yeah. So, talking about like unscientific stuff, I mean, I'm sure there's a science to it. And I'm sure you could put pencil to paper and figure it all out. I mean, if you wanted to, but like shooting a rifle, uh, like he's talking about, Evan. No, I, I don't know. I guess you played, what, what rifle did you shoot, Evan? Was you air rifle or center fire or what was it? Um, so our, our indoor stuff was, was 0.177 pellets, but then our small bore stuff was for the international side, it was 50 meters and it was a 22 long rifle. So rim fire, um, and then NRA disciplines, we'd walk those out to a hundred yards and a hundred meters, um, okay. so pushing that distance a little bit. And that's, yeah. that's where reading the wind and knowing, okay, on a 10-4 wind pattern, it has this effect at different angles of the clock face and depending yeah. on the, again, the the roll of the bullet based on my rifling. And yeah, then you right. get into the, the helical of your veins left or right and how the drag affects that based on, you know, a six o'clock wind versus a nine o'clock wind. And right. So it's like when you're tuning a rifle, like I, I'm, I'm a big time rifle shooter. I like long range and I actually just get into air rifles myself not long ago. So when, when you're shooting them, it's kind of the same concept. I mean, like all you're trying to do is change stuff around to get the barrel hom- harmonics happy mm-hmm. where you're grouping. And like maybe a 10th of a 
a grain of powder charge difference. It might be like on a 22, you can't do that. All you can do is change ammo or you can use a barrel tuner or whatever, but you're just changing the harmonics until you get the groups to come in to where you're happy with it. And then you write that stuff down and don't touch it. You know what I mean? It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. shooting a, a bow and tuning it and then shooting your bear shaft. It's like, a good analogy. And, yep. and exactly like does a 27 inch front bar with three ounces work better than a 30 inch with two exactly. or on my hunting setup, an eight ounce setup in front with the six inch stabilizer versus a 10 or 11 with three or four. Yep. Like if you change stabilizers, you've changed yep. your tune. Exactly. Yep. It's there's so many harmonics that go on in a bow that yeah, anything you change, if you uh, you change an ounce of weight on the end of that stabilizer too. It can change a little bit. So it's how about your yeah. quiver, Jesse? Do you have a do you, do you worry about that? Like you say, I I don't shoot with mine on. I take it oh, off. So it's always off. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you were Western bow hunting, page of Randy Ulmer's book. If you were Western hunting and and you're crawling around hunting mule deer and you're shooting maybe out to 70 yards or whatever and. And sometimes it might be fast and you got to, you can't take your quiver off. And what what do you think? Would it bother you? Well, I would practice with it on for Western hunting, which, yeah, it's just, uh, if I can not have it on there, I would rather do that. But yeah, if I went Western hunting, I would definitely practice and tune with it on there because I know that the majority of time you're going to have it on there. So, yep. Yeah, I run mine on for practice and most of hunting, but like if I'm in a whitetail stand, I take it off because I figure under 30 yards, it's not going to. Right. Yeah. See, I mean, and I've, I've had that bite me. Where, really? Yep. Because I took my quiver off and hung it. I had a doe come in, I shot her and I hung my bow back up and didn't realize that 50 yards behind her was a buck coming in and I yeah. got pegged because, and again, this is on me because I didn't reach up, grab that second arrow and reload. Yeah. So I go ahead, my quiver's on all the time, four arrow, two piece quiver. And it doesn't matter if I'm turkey hunting, whitetail hunting, mule deer, antelope, elk, it's always there. And when I practice and when I tune, I tune with three arrows in the quiver and one space empty. Yeah. Yep. There you go. That's good. Yep. That's interesting stuff. So any other type of tuning that you think is important, you know, um, torque tuning anything like that do you do you do any of that yes uh for sure so um that's torque tuning is something that just kind of builds forgiveness in your setup and when i say torque tuning basically what that is is it's basically the relationship of your rest to your your sight like in in my in a target archer like your scope or your pins uh sight um there's a sweet spot there moving your rest back and forth to where you can basically torque the bow any way you want and you'll still hit right down the middle. Um, your arrow may even fly like crap when you torque it, but it's there's a certain sweet spot to where it's going Im- to like impact the same. So um, the general rule of thumb there is like uh, I do it at, well, for indoors, I do it at 20 yards. So that's all we shoot. But when I go outside, I'll do it at 50 meters and I'll go there and just, get sighted in, shoot some shots, make sure I'm sighted in dead center. And then, uh, taken purposely torque my bow. And the amount that I torque it is like, I run a 30 inch stabilizer and I would say that I torque it to where the end of that stabilizer moves about two inches to the right. So I'll draw back, torque the bow and then I'll re-aim it back in the middle and fire a shot. 
um, if the arrow goes the way I torque it, say if that arrow impacts to the right four inches or whatever, then I will move the rest back towards me um, and then repeat the test. And there, like I say, there's a spot there to where you'll be able to torque it left or right and you'll still hit right down the middle. Mm -hmm. um, it's just one of those things that builds forgiveness into your setup. And in the heat of the moment in the tree stand, or especially if you're shooting angles and stuff like that, you're going to get different torque on your bow. And it could be, I've seen it as much as uh, a foot different at 50 meters before. And I was able wow. to tune all of that out of it to where like hit right in the X ring. So it's a huge, it's a huge, uh, tuning tool to have for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, which brings me to a couple other points. Um, so when you're doing that group tuning thing, there's also a simplified method. You can work on one axis at a time a little bit better if you're just aiming at a line rather than a bullseye or a dot. So say you're doing it at whatever, wherever you're comfortable, 30, 30 yards, put up a one inch or two inch black, um, exactly level line. Make sure you use a level on it because you don't want to just put it straight with your target. It might not be level. So use a level, mm -hmm. put a line on there that you're just going to work on that one axis at a time, your vertical axis. And it doesn't matter because it's just easier to aim at that. Sometimes it doesn't matter yep. if you wander to the right or left and, um, do your vertical tuning and then put up the horizontal line, plumb line, level it again and uh, work on that axis there. And sometimes it's just a more simplified way because a lot of times we'll get caught up in aiming at a bullseye and we're kind of floating around more than what we think we are. So that's another, that's method a great to, point. That's, I, that's, I do that when I'm sighting in. So that's, that's exactly that's, what I was going to say, Alan, is I see it on a straight line. Idea. Yep. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to pull my hair out tonight, shoot groups of hundred yards. Yeah, thing, so. exactly. <laughs> it's also a good way to, once you it, see these two things kind of go hand in hand, like, and there's, you kind of got to go back and forth a little bit. Cause it's also a good way to fine tune your stabilizer setup and, and how your bow is holding, which you really don't have to shoot a shot when you're doing your stabilizer setup. You're just going off of how it holds, but the same way I, I'll do my, my tournament setup the same way there. I'll work on one axis at a time and, just draw back and aim at a, no, I'll actually shoot, but like I say, you don't have to aim at that horizontal line and try to get my, my forward and, and aft weight balance set up, right. And mass weight all together. Um, like if I see that I'm just dipping a lot or whatever, either I need more weight on the back, less on the front, or just an overall lighter mass weight bow. And I'll be able to fine tune those, those three areas to where I can just draw back and aim on that, that line. And then I'll work on my left and right balance and my left and right aim uh, with my sidebar and, you know, changing the angle that that is or the weight on it or whatever, and get to where basically I can draw back with my eyes closed and hold it there for like 10 seconds and then open up my eyes and my bubble is right in the middle on my level. You know, you don't want to be fighting your left and right balance at all. So, so that's a, another little trick of just aiming at lines to do your group tuning and your stabilizer setup. It just kind of helps um, simplify that process. I'm so glad you brought that up. That'll, that'll make it uh, less frustrating for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, great. Uh, this has been good stuff. I, I like how you've brought all this together. It's been, honestly, I didn't expect this perspective, you know, like I, I figured you would be like, I don't know. I just like one of the best pro archers out there, I thought you'd be really scientific about things. I love yeah. this artistic approach. And it sounds like well, you weren't always this way. Like through experience, you found that it's just better. Yeah, I've, I used to be that way. Like I say, I pretty much have OCD on a lot of things. So I, I, but I've basically learned that 
it was uh, not a waste of time because I did learn stuff, but now I just have a little bit more free time to actually practice and work on myself and my shot and my mental game rather than fiddle around with equipment and stuff. So it's definitely freed up a lot of my time. Um, hmm. it, and I don't know how much time we got, but I, I wanted to touch on this also, like how the correlation of target archery and hunting, like uh, shooting target archery, if you've never done it before, um, and I would say especially field archery is going to make you better in every aspect of, of archery, including hunting. So like the, the world field that we just come off of in Yankton, it, it is an extreme, um, extreme shooting situation, like something that maybe you would find in a, you know, whatever, a mountain goat hunt or whatever. You're like, mm -hmm. you're shooting extreme angles in the wind. Uh, it could be any varying conditions, stuff like that rain. And you have to know how to make the cut. You have to know what your bow does at certain cuts and you have to know how much it drifts in the wind. So I try to, you know, introduce as many people as I can into the tournament side of archery, even if they're just bow hunters, because I feel like it helps them so much. Like we had a lot of people come into the shop and they didn't know, they didn't know that they had to cut yardage when they shot angles. So they were shooting out of a tree stand, basically at a deer that was five yards from the base of the tree they didn't like they were shooting over them all the time. They didn't know why he's missing these deer. And I'm like, so I, you know, explained it to him. Anytime you go off of a perfectly horizontal path, you're going to have to cut yardage um, and explain yeah. to him how much it, when it starts really adding up, you know, when you start getting really steep, you know, 30, 40, 50%, like it's, it, it um, amazes you where you have to set your sight to, to hit stuff at that distance. So, um, just getting out there and learning your setup and, and putting yourself in as many different scenarios that you think you could possibly have to where when that moment comes, you're going to be prepared. I think that's extremely important. Um, not just going out there and practicing 20, 30, 40 yards on a flat, no wind. Like you have to know where to set your sight. Like if whatever, a elk or, I mean, obviously an elk's a big target, but and they always seem to walk up, you know, that always yeah. seem to be like close encounters with people and you're not going to miss an elk at that distance. But I'm just saying like, if you was to walk up to two yards to a target right now, a lot of people wouldn't be able to hit a three inch bullseye at two yards. Mm. And that sounds like that's crazy, but that you would have no idea where to, where to set your sight or what pin to hold on it. Um, and the same 54. thing, <laughs> 54 at two yards, two yards, that'd be 70. I think I'm 72. Just look down your arrow guys. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's like in the whitetail woods, it's probably more like, cause people are shooting out of a tree stand straight down on stuff and they're just mm -hmm. shooting over them all the time. And, um, so it's definitely something you need to practice and it, uh, field archery has helped me in every, it's helped me in my indoor game, hunting, uh, 3d game, all that stuff, just because you're shooting a wide array of targets and angles and varying conditions. So I think the pressure makes a big difference too. When you're, you're competing and you're shooting in front of people and you're shooting for something that matters. Even, even shooting Vegas rounds in my garage, in my shop, like toward the end, if I'm having a good round going, I start shaking. I start like having to control like the same exact emotions. I feel when a big buck steps out, I feel when I'm on the 29th arrow and I'm shooting clean. Exactly. I feel yeah. the same thing. And so being able to pull it together and finish, like I have gained a lot from that. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I probably get more nervous when a dinky little buck walks out, you know, and, and I know that I'm probably going to take him or whatever than I do at 
on the line at Vegas. Like, but that is definitely, but yeah, for sure. That's definitely helped train my mind to know what to do in those situations and to not be caught off guard when the adrenaline comes and your heart's pounding out of your chest and you can't stop it. Well, I know from shooting and shoot offs that you're not going to stop it. You have to learn how to deal with it and shoot with it there. So it's definitely made me a lot more comfortable in those situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's been, this has been, uh, really great and, and unexpected. I didn't, I, I, I really like a lot of stuff. It, it kind of blew my mind. I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to be uh, totally surprised at, at your approaches, Jesse. So this is pretty cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, no problem. Like I say, we can go as deep as you want to go, but it's like, how, how deep do you need to go? That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. I try to get people like just enough information just enough that they need. And um, if they have more questions, just go ahead and ask me and we can, I'll answer them as they come, but to try to lay it all, you know, all on someone at once, they just get overwhelmed and can't remember anything. So, well, they can hit rewind on this. There you uh, go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think we covered a pretty broad base of how to set up a bow. Um, so final question, you started bow, bow hunting those white tailed deer when you were six years old in Pennsylvania or Maryland. Uh, Maryland, I started yeah. off. Yeah. So when when did you kill your first one? I believe I was, I believe I was eight. Okay. Yep. Took me a year and a half or so. Yeah. And I I missed a couple in between there. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Because once again, like it's just all experience, and I could. So kind of where the target where archery came into play was when I was in the backyard shooting. I I like started shooting my hunting bow really good and i guess my dad saw that and i was busting knocks at 20 30 yards and um well we found a club it was the cumberland maryland bow hunters and it was an awesome club and like i wouldn't be anywhere where i'm at today if it wasn't for that club like my dad knew a lot and taught me a lot but the people in this club were national champions like multiple time national champions just all out into the target archery scene and we walked in there with all bow hunting stuff. And, you know, they'd seen that before. They'd seen families walk in there and go through the same thing we was going through. Well, we walked in there and, you know, I was probably, I guess, seven at the time with my little PSE Spirit Junior bow and my three-pin Cobra sight, and my hot shot release. And mm-hmm. I stand there at 20 yards and, like, I was I was doing pretty good, I guess. And they, I guess they'd never seen, like, a a younger person walk in and just start shooting like that with a hunting bow. And so I guess they all kind of just kept an eye on me and they started talking to my dad, and my, my parents. And they was like, Hey, you know, we're, we travel around the country. Like we go to regional state, national shoots. Like I, I, you know, I guess they told him like this, your son might have something special here. If we could maybe get him a target bow, you know, I know this guy that has one for sale and, you know, get him this equipment, this and that. So that's how it kind of started. I think it was like the next Christmas, my dad got me, uh, my first target bow and, um, man, it was just, it it was unbelievable. Like I was, I was more ate up with it. Like I couldn't get enough of it. So we go to league every Friday night and, you know, obviously practice at home as much. I would stand like dead of winter where we lived. It got pretty nasty. I'd open the, the door to the house, shoot it 20 or 30 yards out there, put my boots on tromp through like two foot of snow and go pull my arrows and i do that all day <laughs> but uh, so we kind of we kind of jumped in with with that group of people that was like a, an awesome like they they taught us a lot and um 
they they knew just the right way to teach not only me but my dad too and then we just we just all fed off of one another my brothers my brothers shot too well we all did my mom i have two older brothers and my dad we all shot my one brother is a national champion regional champion the other brother was a regional champion my dad was like a 120x shooter my mom was a state champion so we it was pretty awesome we all you know just had it going on and um so we jumped in with them and started going around the shoots and I went to my first national shoot, uh, I think when I was nine or 10 and ended up winning that in the cub division and just wow. kept going back. Like that's where it all started. Like I never let off since, since we started going, I have been going on the, the tour like every year since. So Jeez. pretty awesome. I, I owe like everything to, you know, my parents get me into that club. And then the people that was in that club, this was a tremendous help to, to us. So. That's amazing. 30 years of, uh, competition started yeah. at starting at eight. That's quite a, quite a life. Well, Jesse, we really appreciate you sharing with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll have to do this again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you.